This is my conversation with Kate Adamala, a synthetic biologist and professor of genetics at the University of Minnesota. Her work includes contributions to the field of astrobiology, synthetic cell engineering, and biocomputing. Kate's research on prebiotic RNA replication provided an experimental scenario for the RNA world hypothesis of the origin of life. She has worked in constructing liposome bioreactors synthetic cells. She is a founder and steering group member of the Build a Cell Initiative, an international collaboration for the creation of synthetic life cells. She is a co-founder of the synthetic cell company SynLife. Adamala and Zostak demonstrated non-enzymatic RNA replication in primitive protocells are, are only possible in presence of a weak casein chelator-like citric acid, providing further evidence for the central role of citric acid in primordial metabolism. So, hi, Kate. Thank you so much for joining me. I have just a few, want to start off with one basic question. What is life? It's very tough to define even we still haven't figured it out. Why is that? It's a really difficult question to um, define, and hi, everyone. It's probably the most difficult question to define in our field because it depends on who's asking and what do you want to do with that definition. If you just want to define life to be able to tell a living from non-living organism on Earth, that's relatively easy because you can define it as something that metabolizes, something that's maintains its own composition that's different than the environment and it's made of biological parts that we commonly understand as biological parts on earth and that way you can easily define a living bacteria from a dead bacteria it gets really complicated if you're trying to define life in general as a physical phenomena because we have to acknowledge that life can look completely different depending on what are the building blocks that make it and the properties of life that we take for granted on Earth, for example, having metabolism or having certain kinds of compounds, that doesn't have to be a hallmark of life and that doesn't have to be something that all life has. So, for example, there are chemical processes that maintain their own composition, homostasis, and that's not life. And then there could be life that's built from chemicals that we don't consider living chemicals on earth because that's just different life then some people use self-replication as a hallmark of life some people say life is something that can reproduce and that's a very tricky definition because for example according to that definition then i'm not alive because i cannot self-replicate i need my husband in order to replicate hmm. and so I'm not alive according to that definition. And that just shows you that shortcoming of that definition. So in our field, I like to use the definition um, that uh, US Supreme Court or Justice Porter Stewart used um, many years ago. And it, it, he said, I will know it when I see it. He used it in a completely different context. It wasn't about the definition of life, but it is a good definition. I will know something is alive when I see it. And I'm hoping at least that once we discover or build a new form of life, we'll be able to look at it and say, that's probably living. But I realize it's not satisfying. It's not a clear definition. Um, like a lot of people are used to scientific definitions being very clear, precise. Life is not one of those things that can be defined like that. What, what's the, why, 
as humanity and even as science do we go back and try to study the origins of life what's so important about it one thing is curiosity um we want to know where we came from uh, we're just curious why is there life on earth and as far as we know nowhere else that we can tell so what was special about earth what was special about the chemicals available on earth that gave rise to life it's just a curiosity what makes us special or maybe we're not special at all um and then there is a, a more practical reason and that is once we know how life started on earth we'll be able to draw boundary conditions for what is needed for a life to start on a planet and we're sending missions out there to look for life on mars on europa on enceladus and we're also doing spectroscopic um imaging of other extrasolar planets looking for life because obviously we're curious if there's life elsewhere in the universe and until we know how life started on earth we will have a really hard time looking for life elsewhere because we don't know what conditions are needed for life to start we obviously have some idea because we know in general what conditions were needed on the early earth but it's not certain we don't know exactly these conditions were needed so studying the origin of life on earth will help us figure out is it for example possible to find life on enceladus or is it possible to expect life on europa we think so we think it's possible we hope there's life there but we won't know for sure until we find it and we won't know what to look for until we actually build life and that brings me to the third really big reason for studying origin and earliest evolution of life um and that is we right now have only one life form on earth that's the life form that we represent there is no other tree of life on earth that we know of so building other trees of life is crucial for us to really understand what life is because right now we're scientists that operate on a sample size that equals 1 which is kind of silly when you think about it so wanting to build more kinds of life is pretty much necessary if we want to really engineer life if we want to treat life like any other experimental system and build life forms that have different properties what is this sample size like so we you told just said that you know there's one kind of life that we are used to and that we are aware of can we break that down a bit to understand what we are working with we're working with the same biochemistry all through all known life forms and that's why i say there's only one life form you know you think there is a lot of different forms and functions that life can do like if you look at the tree of life it's incredibly diverse you know if you look at a human and compare it to a mushroom or a bacteria you think it's completely different but when you look at the biochemical level so you look at what molecules actually make life it's all the same the basic building blocks of life are identical for every known organism on earth and what's more all the basic processes are the same all the genes the way that genes are stored the dna the rna the proteins are identical the way we make proteins is identical this enzyme called ribosome is the most conserved catalyst on earth it really didn't the catalytic center of the ribosome didn't evolve since the origin of life and so that makes it very clear that life all came from a single origin from the last universal common ancestor of all life but that also makes it kind of boring because it's single biochemistry and if i want to for example ask how else can life be done nature doesn't have an answer for me because nature only does it in one way 
what are the processes of life that like we have all like all life forms on earth that we know of are going through um so all life has genetic material that's in dna all life transcribes that genetic material onto rna and then translates it into proteins so this is called the central dogma the flow of information in all of biology from dna to rna to proteins all life forms do that all life forms have this so-called ribosome which is the catalyst that makes proteins from rna and the catalytic site so that actual part that does catalyze the reaction that didn't change the sequence of that catalytic site is universal across all the tree of life and it's actually a pretty crappy catalyst it's not really a catalyst it's a so-called entropy trap which means it's not a true biocatalyst as chemists understand it and that's kind of funny because that's the most ubiquitous enzyme on earth every living organism has ribosomes and it's mm. not even that good of a catalyst <laughs> so that's the main process that life does and also all life uses the same building blocks the same amino acids the same nucleotides the same energy molecules and the same lipids so basically life is really not very diverse on the biochemical level uh almost 5 years ago you had mentioned that we don't completely understand how cells work and do you still st- stand and hold that position and why yes we don't understand it because we cannot trace all the molecules that are in cells um even the simplest living cell that cragventer's mycoplasma based synthetic cell is not a fully known fully completely understood organism we made the genome for that organism so we know all the genes but we don't know all the molecules that are in there and that's why we say we don't understand life because to understand the process you need to understand every molecule that is part of that process and we cannot say that for life so how does synthetic cells come into play this is where your area of expertise and work is in uh why is it important and first of all and then how can we trace back cell and life itself when we don't understand it so synthetic cells are cell like objects that are made in the lab and the way we make them is we put together molecules that are completely known completely defined and that means we can actually completely define a synthetic cell so we basically can say this particular cell contains that list of molecules and that list of molecules tells us exactly what's going on in the cell and that makes it completely defined and that's why you now we can fully understand what's going on with the synthetic cell and that makes it a much easier or much more kind of a trackable system to work with because we can exactly tell okay this molecule goes here this molecule goes there and we can understand the whole system that we're working with so what defines the synthetic cells what is similar to it from a biological cell um that's a question that uh, you will get a different answer depending on who you ask um okay. for me a cell i'm i'm kind of a traditionalist to me a cell has to have a compartment that's actually how cells were called cells because there was a guy that looked under the first microscope and he looked at first cells that people have ever seen under the microscope they were some simple bacteria cells and he thought they look like little rooms that monks live in that were called cells mm-hmm. and that's why he called them cells and so to me 
the, obviously there are biochemical and evolutionary reasons why I want compartment, but I like to go back to that original definition because basically cell needs to be an individual. So to me, a synthetic cell or a natural cell, it has to be a compartment. So that compartment most of the time is a lipid, whether it's a synthetic cell or natural cell, it's a lipid compartment. And I like that because it's, um, it gives us a lot of flexibility to work with it. Some people make synthetic cells that are not in lipid compartments, that are in different kinds of compartments in so-called microfluidic systems where you flow little droplets and each of those droplets is a separate synthetic cell. And that works great too. These are um, basically compartments that make cells. Um, and then right now, synthetic cells, all synthetic cells that we've made so far follow the central dogma of biology. So they're not yet an independent tree of life. They all use DNA, RNA, and proteins. And that's because that's what we have to work with. Once we make synthetic cells and we get better at building them, um, we'll be able to really move away from that classical tree of life and make those other structures, other architectures that I really would like to see. But for now, we're limited to what we can get. And that is a um, natural building blocks. So synthetic cell is a cell-like object that has some, but not all functions of natural cells. And most of all, we can truly engineer them. So we can build them with whatever function we want them to have. And that's the biggest difference between a synthetic and natural cell. So what are the building blocks that we are working with now that we've developed at this stage? Okay, they have a boundary wall, which is a lipid cell boundary. Uh, but then beyond that, what functions do they perform? They can express genes. So synthetic cells have their own genomes and they express those genes into proteins. And those proteins can be enzymes or building block proteins or proteins that build the membranes or proteins that make channels in the membrane. So basically whatever you want. Sometimes people build synthetic cells that have um, enzymes that, that make small molecules, um, some useful small molecules, drugs or some other useful molecules. And so that's the main function of synthetic cells is that they um, help us make things just like natural cells. And then synthetic cells can also have some functions of natural cells, like um, they can show antibiotic resistance, they can show um, competition between different populations, they can show um, processes that we normally study in nat only in natural cells, like for example, genetic circuits, how those circuits work, genetic um, circuits like logic gates, so any function that you can imagine in natural cells, people either have reconstituted in synthetic cells or are trying to reconstitute. And that's mostly because we want to be able to really study those processes. And in synthetic cells, we can study them much clearer than in natural cells. So what are the limitations that we have at this stage? What can these, what can't these synthetic cells do? The biggest limitation right now is that synthetic cells cannot self replicate. Um, so we can replicate them, but they do not self-replicate. And that's a big difference. Um, we can grow them and we can replicate them, but they do not spontaneously decide that it's time to replicate, which means they cannot survive outside of the very controlled lab environment. But isn't that a good thing, though? Because if they do self-replicate, there are mutations that can happen, uh, things that can go out of our control, and then it becomes an issue. That's absolutely true. Um, it is much better for also for safety that they do not self-replicate because we're building those new chassis and they cannot self-replicate right now. So they cannot just go on and evolve on their own. 
Um, it would be interesting if they started self-replicating to some extent, though, because one of the kind of hallmarks of life is that life evolves. Yeah. And so introducing mutations is good to life because it creates diversity. And right now we cannot do that with synthetic cells. We can create that diversity artificially, but not naturally. So how does one create that artificially, though? So like, let's go back to basics, try to explain that to someone who doesn't understand it. So the easiest way to create that diversity is to design it. So for example, I want to make synthetic cells that have a better enzyme. I look at that enzyme and I either run an artificial evolution experiment where I make better enzymes, or I just look at the enzyme and I can tell, okay, changing this amino acid in that position will make this enzyme better. And then I synthesize that genome chemically and make it so that it actually um, uh, performs better, whatever function of that enzyme is. So it's called rational design um, or artificial evolution in the lab. And that's how we make that diversity. Isn't this very similar to gain-of-function research? Yes, it's very much um, simpler version of gain-of-function. We look what, at enzymes and make them what better. Would, what would be the difference then? Like, how would you differentiate between creating synthetic cells versus uh, gain-of-function research? So most of, most of the time when people say that traditional gain-of-function research, they talk about acquiring new functions in natural organisms. So, for example, there is a bacteria that didn't know how to metabolize certain building block, and then we introduce an enzyme that enables it that, to metabolize that, and that's the classical gain-of-function. With synthetic cells, we're building it on a completely artificial chassis. So we, we're building it from scratch, essentially. So the whole thing is gain of function because that synthetic cell didn't exist before our experiment. So this just adds uh, another level of control completely in your hands. Yes, we can control the exact composition of that um, synthetic cell. So how many generations of success has it been? Like, you know, you when you have to come in and replicate because they don't do it themselves. Uh, is it been possible to do a series of it? Has it been gone to infinity and beyond? Or is it still like there's a stopping point? We're still very early in that research. The most generations is about five. And that's, that's what we can characterize. I mean, I'm sure we can go farther if we keep going. But right now, the, the most is five. And what uses has this been? Like you mentioned, uh, like, kind of briefly about like creating your own like you know customizable cell H how has that like how would that further different fields in research and science there's a lot of practical applications and there's a lot of foundational research curiosity applications um so i'll start with the curiosity ones because that's what really is most exciting for me um yes the biggest one is we want to know exactly how life works so the there is a very cheesy quote that a lot of people in our field use, and it's overused, but I still like it. It's a quote from Richard Feynman, who was a physicist, but he had a really good understanding of life. And he said, what I cannot build, I cannot understand. And that's a very good description of why we're making synthetic cells. We cannot really understand what life is until we're able to build it. And we're not able to build it yet we're building synthetic cells that resemble life but not are not quite life and that's a really big thing to me at least is we cannot really tell that life is what life is how life works until we actually build it 
And that's the biggest motivation for me is I want to make life in the lab. And then there's a lot of practical applications. Um, one practical application that's not obvious, but it's extremely important, is that we need better ways to make compounds, make chemicals with biology. And the reason we need it is because our entire civilization is, relies on oil, on fossil fuels. And when people talk about fossil fuels, they mostly talk about energy. Like we need gasoline, we need oil to drive planes, to heat cars, to heat houses. And we have technology to replace oil in those applications. You know, we can make electricity with solar, with um, hydrothermal energy, with um, water energy, with nuclear energy. There are ways to get energy. What we don't have is a way to replace chemicals that we get from oil. This entire petrochemical industry that relies on isolating compounds from oil and then using it to make other things is not possible to replace right now. So if we run out of oil tomorrow, we would have ways to replace the energy that we get from oil, but we do not have ways to replace petrochemicals. And a lot of you, when, they, when you hear petrochemicals, you probably think plastics, mm. but that's just the tip of the iceberg not just plastics, everything that surrounds you is made from petrochemicals, clothes, electronics, everything that runs our industry, and most importantly, food. F our entire world food production relies on fertilizers, and those fertilizers are derived from chemicals that are derived from oil. That's one of the reasons why um, food prices are going up all over the world right now, because we have the war that affects oil supply. And this is connected. A lot of people don't think about that connection. You probably don't think of oil as something that's necessary to produce crops that feed the world, but that's it. If we don't have petrochemicals, we cannot feed the planet. And that's a really big thing that we do not have a way to replace right now. If we run out of oil, a lot of the world's population would simply starve because we do not have a way to grow enough food for as many people as we have in the world right now. And that's a really big motivation for synthetic biology because we have to find a way to make those compounds that we need with renewable energy sources and with renewable feedstocks, so-called. It's, it's called feedstocks, so basically the materials that you use to convert into what you wanna make. So right now we take oil and extract those small molecules from it. Once we start having access to uh, stop having access to oil, we need to start using something else, and that has to be renewable. So it has to be biology. And now let's go back to synthetic cells. Those compounds that we get from oil are very toxic because oil is toxic. Yeah. And so no self-respecting bacteria or yeast or other living organism will make those compounds for us because they're deadly. They're toxic. They're poisonous to living cells. So we have to build a metabolism from scratch that's built around the need to make that compound because you basically design that metabolism in a way that makes those oil compounds, those toxic petrochemicals, not toxic to that metabolism because it's been built with those chemicals in mind. And that's the biggest practical application that the field is going towards is we want to be able to make compounds that we right now make from petrochemicals we want to be able to make those compounds with biology. And we need to design biology in order to be able to do that. 
So that's kind of the biggest application. And then there are other applications that are very important as well. And those are things like making drugs on demand. So making um, small amounts of drugs for individual patients, all this personalized medicine promise and being able to make uh, drugs under remote conditions. So for example, biomanufacturing without a cold chain. If you want to make something with biology right now, you need to have a way to freeze your cells that you use. With synthetic cells, you can lyophilize them. So basically you can dry them out and store them like dry yeast. Mm -hmm. And then you can rehydrate them and make stuff. And so that enables things like vaccine production, for example, in under remote conditions in countries that cannot maintain a cold chain all the way down. We've seen that right now with a COVID vaccine, how difficult it is to distribute COVID vaccine in countries that do not have that infrastructure. And if we are able to make drugs with a system that doesn't require that cold chain, then we'll be able to deliver um, drugs, vaccines to places that do not have cold chain. So these are just a few applications, but I think they're the really most fascinating and the most impactful applications. How do you see it moving forward? Because I know these are very fascinating things. And like the minute any of this like hits the ground, it's going to change the paradigm of how we function in society and like how our culture like, you know, monetizes like petrochemicals, for example, or medicine. Uh, do you see it happening soon? Because I know we can say five years, but realistically, you're, yeah. you're in, in the trenches, you're doing it. How do you feel like, is there going to be progress soon? What, what uh, like, you know, key things have you seen in your work that you can say that, yes, this is very promising for us? Um, we're definitely going to see a lot of progress within the next five years, but those applications that I mentioned will not hit the market in that timeline. Um, we are seeing a lot of progress in making self-replicating designable synthetic cells. So that's definitely going to happen within the next five years that we'll be able to have a synthetic cell that can evolve, that can go through cell cycle. Um, in order to do what I mentioned, this production of chemicals, we need a lot of inventions uh, we need to make synthetic cells not just um, able to self-replicate but we need to be able to make them at scale so we need to be able to make them at large quantities really large quantities and that will require a lot of progress in engineering the synthetic cell metabolism so that's not a five-year plan that's more like 10 to 20 year plan uh you've mentioned in the past about like top-down and bottom-up uh, approaches to building synthetic cells. Can you explain a little bit to someone who would not have any background in it? So top-down means you take things that are very well-defined but don't work together and put them together. So, for example, a top-down way, sorry, a bottom-up way to build a car would be you take all the building blocks of a car. So you take all the bolts and screws and nuts and parts and try to put it together like the people that build an engine from scratch and the analogy for building cells is that in the bottom-up approach you take all the building blocks of a cell and put them together until they start working like a cell and then the opposite is the top-down approach the top-down means you take something that works but you don't understand it and you try to make it simpler until you're actually able to understand it. So for example, you take a very complex living cell and you try to take away genes and take away processes until you end up with a cell that you completely understand. 
And we're hoping that one day both of those approaches will meet in the middle and the end result is that synthetic cell that we actually fully understand. What's the benefit of either method or, or drawback, let's say? The drawbacks of the bottom-up approach is that we're starting with something that's dead as a doornail. It's just molecules. Hmm. So we need to literally create life. We need to make life from scratch. Uh, and that's obviously a huge, difficult step. But we're starting with something that we already understand. So we're starting with a system that's clearly understood. The drawback of the top-down approach is that we're starting with something that we don't understand because we don't understand the living cell. So we're kind of fumbling with it in the dark. We don't exactly know what we're doing because we don't know what makes uh, a living cell tick, what makes that complex living cell do its life processes. So these are kind of complementary approaches. Um, we approach the problem from the bottom-up perspective, trying to put together a synthetic cell. And then one day we'll have it complex enough that maybe I'll start doing life. But then we've also learned a lot from this top-down approach where we take a synthetic cell, living cell and try to make it simpler and simpler and see what's really necessary for life. So what is build a cell? Like, I know you're a big part, a part of that. Can you explain what their approach is, what's going on, and when it started? Uh, so build a cell is an international community or international organization that coordinates engineering synthetic cells across the world. And the reason for existing is that you should not be doing research alone. This is too big of a problem. I mean, this is probably one of the biggest problems or biggest challenges in science right now is how do we make life from scratch? And it's not possible for a single lab or even a single country to do that. And we learn a lot as we're doing it and we need to be able to coordinate, to share that knowledge. We wanna talk with people that do the same work and that's what a build a cell is. It's the community of people that are interested in it that allows us to talk to each other, to coordinate research and also coordinate outreach. Talk to people outside of science about what we're doing, why we're doing it, why it's important and why uh, the way we're doing it is safe. And build a cell started five years ago and we've been growing ever since um we have almost 100 labs uh in build a cell right now and uh the community is really friendly that's really important to me as someone who kind of coordinates the activities of it is that i want people to work together i don't want people to be too competitive or secretive and that's what we as the builders are really agree that is super important is we want people to collaborate together, not compete to, uh, with each other. And that's the biggest, I think, achievement of our community is we get people to talk to each other, people from different countries, from different universities, um, people at every stage of careers. So we have students, postdocs, PIs, we have people that are not um, in research at all. They all come together and talk about challenges, talk about opportunities. And that's the biggest thing for me is that creating this sort of an international forum for people to talk to each other. Have you been like, you know, aware of Lee Cronin's work? So he works, does something similar. Are you guys collaborating? What's the consensus if there is? Yeah, so Lee is one of the PIs uh, within the Build a Cell and I collaborate with him personally too. He's a fantastic guy and 
his research ideas are really groundbreaking. Um, his approach to engineering life is different than most people because what he does is he wants to build life from different chemical building blocks. And that's really groundbreaking approach. And what he learns building key systems helps us learn about boundaries of life, um, helps us learn what are kind of the ways in which life can be done that are not the natural ways. So that's really useful for kind of drafting the limitations and drafting the directions in which our field should be going. Speaking of growing, let's go out of space. What could be the possibilities? Like you said, looking for life outside in ways beyond what we understand life is. What else can we use synthetic cells for out of space? Um, so one of the biggest challenges of space exploration is how do you get humans out into space and how do you keep them alive once they're out there? Um, there is a huge amount of things that we need that we get from basically being a part of civilization. And that's medicine, nutrients, chemicals that make all the materials that we're surrounded with. And once you send people, for example, on a mission to Mars, they will be cut off from that entire human civilization for months to years at a time. So they need to have the ability to make whatever they need in that very small space of a spaceship. And this is more difficult than you think, because um, there's a lot of needs that we cannot anticipate. There is a lot of things that the astronauts will need that we cannot right now predict what will it be. So what we need is a way to manufacture things in a very versatile way. And biology is really good at versatile manufacturing, but you need to pre-program it to do that. And that's where synthetic cells come really handy, because you can make synthetic cells to produce whatever enzyme or molecule you want from a set of pre-designed building blocks. You cannot do that with a normal living cell. So you can have a support lab on Earth, troubleshoot and design a biomanufacturing platform to, for example, make a drug that astronauts will need. And then you send them information about making it. So for example, if an astronaut gets sick with a particular type of cancer or some other metabolic disease that we know how to treat, but they don't have drugs for it on board, we can design a metabolic pathway that will make that drug and then send information about making that pathway. And then in synthetic cells, you can build that pathway in a really easy way. And so they can do that on board of that ship and then make the drug. And that's not possible with natural cells because they're much harder to engineer. So that's one big application, and that's called astropharmacy. So basically making drugs in space. And we're already practicing that. We're troubleshooting that. We've demonstrated that synthetic cell manufacturing can work under spaceflight conditions. Now we're trying to, to show that you can make those very complex drugs that way. Um, and that's going to be part of the support for keeping those astronauts alive um, during a long-term space mission. Have there been any test sessions or test uh, explorations done where like synthetic cells were used to like, you know, see if they were replicated? Like, can you give me like proper examples to see what was done and what worked, what didn't work? So we've shown that you can send them to space and they still make proteins, they still work. Um, we haven't tested um, any of those replication cycles under spaceflight conditions. That still needs to be done. 
And we haven't tested the truly autonomous manufacturing. So we haven't tested what happens if I make a pathway in my lab and then try to send it to an astronaut to recreate that pathway. That's something that has never been tested. So that needs to be tested. Do you think that'll happen next year? I don't know if it will happen next year, but it will definitely happen within the next few years. But it's in the pipeline, hopefully, because, you know, it's yes. exciting. It's it's exciting science. It could change a lot of things and forget out of space, even like, you know, uh, when it comes to medicine that could be available in, in third world countries where it's not even, like yes. you said, transportation. It changes the paradigm completely. That's the goal is, you know, the space applications are obviously fascinating and we find it cool. But the driving force behind a lot of that research is helping existing living humans that are in the need right now and that's the applications in the underdeveloped countries where the cold chain is not in place where the manufacturing capacity is not in place because right now we see that there is this huge inequality a lot of people have access to medicine but a lot of people don't there is a lot of diseases that people are dying of that are perfectly treatable in a more developed country and that's that's just from the human point of view, it's just insanely unfair. And one way to get around it, obviously, would be to develop the medical system, the medical establishment all over the world. But that takes huge amount of money and that's very difficult. An easier way would be to remove the need for the medical establishment to be as developed as it is. For example, you know, I have access to a very well-stocked pharmacy down the street that has freezers that can um, buy me any drug that I want. I have really good medical insurance that can help me buy all the drugs I need. One way would be to give that ability to everyone. But another way would be to remove the need for that to be in place. So for example, if someone lives in a poor village in a country that's not as well developed, one way would be to obviously advocate for that person to have access to really good medical insurance and infrastructure. But another way would be to just make drugs cheaper and easier. So we don't need this really expensive insurance. We don't need those freezers. We don't need the well-stocked pharmacy. All we need is a simple biomanufacturing capacity. So that person, when they need a drug, he or she can order that drug and that drug can be made much cheaper. And if we can do that, then we don't need to develop that infrastructure everywhere. We can just give people the medicine that they need. And that's a really big driving force behind those applications because you know, sending humans to Mars is obviously a super cool application and we're all excited about it, but that, that that's going to happen in many decades. Um, we have people that need those medicines right now today and we should be thinking about those people first. And that's a big driving about, force for that research. What about people who have conditions within their bodies? Like, you know, okay, I have a liver condition, my liver is failing or my heart is like, you know, deteriorating uh, or Alzheimer's, something like that. Would synthetic cells be able to solve that problem? Synthetic cells won't give you drugs that don't exist. So basically right now we can only make the drugs that we know work. So if you have a condition that's treatable, so for example, if you have a liver condition and a drug for that condition exists, we should be able to make it for you with synthetic cells. But if a drug doesn't exist, then I mean, we can't develop that drug on the spot. So that's always the limitation is there has to be the drug development process in place that will make drugs for those conditions. And we can't short circuit that at this point. What about maybe 
having those okay this is me like you know wishful thinking hoping that we are able to synthesize cells that replace human cells where where it becomes more complex and it can function in replacement of so like instead of like having a bionic arm you have cells that replicate yeah. to become and then that's the future that i'm seeing yes um that's a really fascinating idea i'm personally skeptical about it because i think transplant organs that come from natural cells will come faster um we've already seen that it's possible to transplant a pig's heart into a human and i think that's the immediate future of organ transplants is if you need a new liver or a new heart or a new lung making genetically modified animals that can produce those organs for us is going to be much easier and faster because those organs are insanely complex um we're just learning how to build organs from scratch those so-called organoids where people grow organs in a test tube we're just learning how to make them and nature does it for us i mean nature mm. built a pig that has a heart that basically looks like a human heart yeah. so i think the future of organ transplants will be to start at least for the most common organs that we need like kidneys liver heart lungs probably harvesting them from animals will be much easier and faster um that doesn't solve the problem of as you mentioned an arm because there is no animal that has an arm that looks like a human arm hmm. um i think for that the future is bionics um really robotics that kind of is a hybrid between electronics and biomaterials these are getting really much better people can have arms that are controlled by central by nervous system already and i think that's the future synthetic cells can be used to help grow organs we've seen that already there's published work that shows that synthetic cells can facilitate growing vasculature in organoids but my personal opinion is that the organs for transplant in the nearest future will be available mostly from animal sources once we get better at engineering animals that make organs compatible with humans that's so in a nutshell i should calm down it's not there yet <laughs> i think it's not there yet i i would be really excited to see that happen hmm. maybe in 100 years we'll be able to see that you know i would be really happy to to eat my words in 10 years you know if someone makes a synthetic cell based organ that will replace a human organ i would be very happy to say i was wrong and it works that that would be fascinating but i just don't see the technology being there makes sense uh then another question comes to cancer research like there is medication for it but it's a very messy one it doesn't just kill like you know cancer cells it kills human cells alive functioning cells so would this technology this science be able to like go further than what we have in medicine Yes, there is a lot of work in the field of synthetic cells done right now already in this area. Um one person that comes to mind that's really active in this field is Avi Schreder, his lab is at Technion. Um he publishes fantastic work on using synthetic cells to shrink tumors in live animals. That's where the technology is already. Um he published work that shows that if you make a mouse with a breast cancer model so it's basically a model of a human breast cancer but in a mouse you can shrink that cancer by injecting synthetic cells into that tumor 
And I think that's the future because synthetic cells can target cancer cells very well. They can target them much better than um, drugs that we have right now. So I think in the next five to 10 years, we'll see first clinical trials for this technology of being able to really target specific cancers in humans. What's the success rate of this right now? Because then if you're talking good numbers and it's looking strong, then it's going to be quicker than what we expect. We don't have data from humans because there's no human trials yet. So it's really hard to speculate. Um, there could be things that come out in human trials we're not expecting. So it's really hard to speculate at this point. Um, you know, if everything goes fantastically well, that soonest a drug can hit a market will be about a decade because that's just what the process is. That's how long it takes for a drug to go to the market. You know, when COVID vaccines showed up a year after the first worldwide wave of COVID, that's really groundbreaking. A lot of people don't realize how groundbreaking that was, that in one year, we managed to make something that was available to humans. Usually that process literally takes a decade from the discovery that this can work to this can hit the market. And with synthetic cells, it is a pressing need, but it's not like a worldwide pandemic of COVID. So there is really no way to speed it up. We have to go to all of the first animal trials, then human trials. So why does it take that long? Like, okay, this is from someone who doesn't have the background, who doesn't understand yeah. what the process is. Like, why should it take 10 years when the science is still there? Because we, it's very easy to tell that a drug works. It's very hard to tell that a drug doesn't have other effects on a patient. And a very good example of that is, um, you've heard of a drug called thalidomide. It was a um, drug that was invented to prevent nausea in uh, pregnant women and it was great it was fantastic drug no side effects women took it and they the nausea went away and you know anyone who any woman who've ever been pregnant or any guy who had a pregnant wife can tell that that, that nausea in pregnancy is terrible and you just take that pill it was an oral drug you take a pill and the nausea goes away that's a miracle right and then the kids started being born without legs, without arms, with horrible deformations. And that was a lesson that we really learned. Drugs can have incredible side effects that are impossible to predict. There are other examples of that, but that's just one of the most drastic examples is a drug can have side effects that we absolutely cannot imagine until we actually do the human experiment. So unfortunately, the only way to know that the drug does not have side effects is to give it to a small population of patients and wait and wait and wait. And that's what takes time is we have to first show that the drug is safe. Then we have to show that the drug is effective and then we can finally allow it to go on the market. And that's what takes so long is we first have to show that the drug is safe in rodents, doesn't kill the mice, hmm. then we have to show that it's safe in primates, it doesn't kill monkeys. Then we do a very small scale patient trials, very few people, just to see that the drug is safe in humans. Then we do a larger scale patient trials to see that the drug is still effective and 
doesn't produce side effects in humans. And that takes years because those side effects can take months to years to, to manifest themselves. And only then we can say the drug is safe and effective enough to really allow it to go on the market. And that's what takes so long that, that there is just no way around that process hmm. because a side effect can take literally years to show itself. Speaking of side effects, speaking of animal trials and then human trials, uh, you mentioned in the past about synthetic cells having the possibility of customization to a certain degree that each medication works specifically for each person because each person is different. Everyone doesn't have the same side effects. Can you explain a bit about how that would work if there's like um, in terms of human trials and all of that? Yeah. So one good example is cancer. Um, a lot of cancers have very specific proteins on the surface of cancer cells. And so, for example, you know, a lot of people say, I have a breast cancer, but there really is no such thing as a breast cancer. Almost every patient has a different kind of breast cancer cells. Those cells have different receptors on their cells. Right now, we treat all cancers with similar medications. There are small molecules that just indiscriminately kill cells. There are some personalized therapies, for example, those so-called CAR T cells, where we take cells, uh, immune cells from a patient, modify them to fight this particular cancer, and then inject them back to a patient. With synthetic cells, you could do the same, but you wouldn't need to first take cells from the patient. So that would be that um, personalized medicine aspect, is we treat every cancer differently, but try to target it with the same, let's say, a killing molecule. So we make synthetic cells that make a molecule that kills cancer cells, but only cells that that synthetic cell can find. And then we program a synthetic cell to find that specific subtype of cancer that the patient has. And that really helps us personalize it. So we you know, treat every patient as an individual. And it's more targeted than just like yes. you know, blindly killing cells that we feel like are cancerous. Exactly. So, and there's a lot of work in that area right now. Well, okay, so now I want to go back to you as a person, as a researcher. Mm -hmm. Where, how did this start off? Like, I'm sure like you didn't wake up one day it's like, you know what, this is what I'm going to work here. Uh, what got you excited to get in this field? Uh, it's a really fascinating field to me because it combines the foundational research with the scientific curiosity driven research. So I'm, I'm a curious person and I want to ask questions about what happens if I do this or that. And this is fascinating to me because I basically can say, oh, this is really cool work. I can do it. But down the line, there are those really life-saving applications. And there are not many fields of science that allow you to do that, that allow you to do this absolutely curiosity driven research but it has practical applications. And that's what got me into this field is I want to do something that's inherently cool, that's fun to talk about, that's fun to think about. But down the line, there are very practical life-saving applications. And that's that's really fascinating to me. What would you tell somebody who is just starting off? Even if it doesn't have to be specifically in your field and your uh, expertise, but they are a curious person, but they just don't know where which direction to go in. I would say I'm really jealous of where you are because if you're just <laughs> starting out, it's 
you have this giant box of chocolates that you can pick from. I mean, science is fascinating no matter where you look, whatever you like. Um, if you're interested more in chemistry or biochemistry or biology or physics, there's a lot of ways to do science. And depending on what fits with what kind of work you like doing, if you like to do a lot of math or a lot of chemistry, you like lab work or you more like theoretical work, there's a lot of areas to pick from. And I would say scientific career is one of the best careers that person can go into because it just keeps you interested. Every day you go to work and there's something new to work on. And it's also a growing field. There is a lot of research towards science. And, you know, people are saying this century will be the age of biology. This will be the age of synthetic biology where we actually start making things with biology. We start really understanding biology. And that's a really fascinating and career with a lot of future prospects to get into. So if someone is interested in any research career, um, I would say just find a lab and get started. The first lab that you're going to join is probably not going to be the last area that you're going to be working in, but it's going to start giving you an idea of what you like doing. And then just figure out what you like. That's great about science is that you should just follow the discipline that is interesting to you. And if you were to recommend any specific uh, books or things that they should like listen to to get inspired uh, or like your go to books or people that you go to when you feel like, you know, it's just not working out. I'm so frustrated. Uh, what would you recommend? Um, I really like reading science fiction. Most of my private reading is actually either science fiction or popular science books. Um, I love popular science writers that really can talk about what they're fascinated um, with. And I really like reading books about the history of science too. Um, some of the books that I recently read were about the history of particular fields, history of discovery in particular fields. Um, but most of all, I just like reading science fiction because it's kind of a cleansing your mind. It, if you spend all day thinking about the serious stuff and you thinking about work when you're relaxing you just want to kind of let your mind wander and that's to me science fiction is the area that let, really lets me do that um if someone wants to get into research there is a lot of kind of a modern popular science books that really get give you a really good idea of what fields of research are what how research is done there is um a lot of good podcasts too i mean the one we're on right now and <laughs> There is a lot of science podcasts that people can listen to, depending on what area of research they're interested in. And where can people find your work and follow your work? Are you on social media? Do you have a website? Um, we have a website. If you Google my name, my lab website comes up. Um, and I'm not very good at social media. I probably should be better at it. But I, I'm on Twitter. I used to be more active on Twitter. Now I'm just kind of waiting, seeing what happens with Twitter. And... <laughs> There is um, a lot of people in our field, if you just Google synthetic cell research, there is a lot of people on, in our field that are also, you know, active on Twitter, active um, on their own websites. Almost everyone right now has a lab website. Every research group, every active research group has a lab website where you can go and read about the current papers. Um, so I, 
yeah. mostly recommend people just if they want to learn more about something, just Google it. Um, that's the easiest way. And then there's so much information right now out there. Makes sense. All right. Thank you so much for speaking with me. Thank you so much for having me. That was fun. Mm -hmm.